Chapter One, Part Two of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Twelve. Suppose a man says, "I am pleased," and suppose it is not a lie or a mistake, but the truth. Well, if it is true, what does that mean? It means that his mind. A certain definite mind, distinguished by certain definite marks from all others, has at this moment a certain definite feeling called pleasure. Pleased means nothing but having pleasure, and though we may be more pleased or less pleased, and even, we may admit for the present, have one or another kind of pleasure, yet in so far as it is pleasure we have, whether there be more or less of it, and whether it be of one kind or another, what we have is one definite thing, absolutely indefinable, some one thing that is the same in all the various degrees and in all the various kinds of it that there may be. We may be able to say how it is related to other things, that, for example, it is in the mind that it causes desire, that we are conscious of it, etc., etc. We can, I say, describe its relations to other things, but define it we cannot. And if anybody try to define pleasure for us as being any other natural object, if anybody were to say, for instance, that pleasure means the sensation of red, and were to proceed to deduce from that that pleasure is a color, we should be entitled to laugh at him and to distrust his future statements about pleasure. Well, that would be the same fallacy which I have called the naturalistic fallacy that pleased does not mean having the sensation of red or anything else whatever does not prevent us from understanding what it does mean it is enough for us to know that pleased does mean having the sensation of pleasure and though pleasure is absolutely indefinable though pleasure is pleasure and nothing else whatever yet we feel no difficulty in saying that we are pleased the reason is of course that when i say i am pleased i do not mean that i am the same thing as having pleasure and similarly no difficulty need be found in my saying that pleasure is good and yet not meaning that pleasure is the same thing as good that pleasure means good and that good means pleasure if i were to imagine that when i said i am pleased i meant that i was exactly the same thing as pleased i should not indeed call that a naturalistic fallacy although it would be the same fallacy as i have called naturalistic with reference to ethics the reason of this is obvious enough when a man confuses two natural objects with one another, defining the one by the other, if, for instance, he confuses himself, who is one natural object, with pleased, or with pleasure, which are others, then there is no reason to call the fallacy naturalistic. But if he confuses good, which is not in the same sense a natural object, with any natural object whatever, then there is reason for calling that a naturalistic fallacy. Its being made with regard to good marks it as something quite specific, and the specific mistake deserves a name because it is so common. As for the reasons why good is not to be considered a natural object, they may be preserved for discussion in another place. But, for the present, it is sufficient to notice this. Even if it were a natural object, 
that would not alter the nature of the fallacy nor diminish its importance one whit all that i have said about it would remain quite equally true only the name which i have called it would not be so appropriate as i think it is and i do not care about the name what i do care about is the fallacy it does not matter what we call it provided we recognize it when we meet it it is to be met with in almost every book on ethics and yet it is not recognized and that is why it is necessary to multiply illustrations of it and convenient to give it a name it is a very simple fallacy indeed when we say that an orange is yellow we do not think our statement binds us to hold that orange means nothing else than yellow or that nothing can be yellow but an orange supposing the orange is also sweet does that bind us to say that sweet is exactly the same thing as yellow that sweet must be defined as yellow and supposing it be recognized that yellow just means yellow and nothing else whatever does that make it any more difficult to hold that oranges are yellow most certainly it does not on the contrary it would be absolutely meaningless to say that oranges were yellow unless yellow did in the end mean just yellow and nothing else whatever unless it was absolutely indefinable we should not get very far with our science if we were bound to hold that everything which was yellow meant exactly the same thing as yellow we should find we had to hold that an orange was exactly the same thing as a stool a piece of paper a lemon anything you like we could prove any number of absurdities but should we be the nearer to the truth why then should it be different with good why if good is good and indefinable should i be held to deny that pleasure is good is there any difficulty in holding both to be true at once on the contrary there is no meaning in saying that pleasure is good unless good is something different from pleasure it is absolutely useless so far as ethics is concerned to prove as mr spencer tries to do that increase of pleasure coincides with increase of life unless good means something different from either life or pleasure he might just as well try to prove that an orange is yellow by shewing that it is always wrapped up in paper thirteen in fact if it is not the case that good denotes something simple and indefinable only two alternatives are possible either it is a complex a given whole about the correct analysis of which there could be disagreement or else it means nothing at all and there is no such subject as ethics in general however ethical philosophers have attempted to define good without recognizing what such an attempt must mean they actually use arguments which involve one or both of the absurdities considered in section eleven we are therefore justified in concluding that the attempt to define good is chiefly due to want of clearness as to the possible nature of definition there are in fact only two serious alternatives to be considered in order to establish the conclusion that good does denote a simple and indefinable notion it might possibly denote a complex as horse does or it might have no meaning at all neither of these possibilities has however been clearly conceived and seriously maintained as such by those who presume to define good and both may be dismissed by a simple appeal to facts one 
the hypothesis that disagreement about the meaning of good is disagreement with regard to the correct analysis of a given whole may be most plainly seen to be incorrect by consideration of the fact that whatever definition may be offered it may always be asked with significance of the complex so defined whether it is itself good to take for instance one of the more plausible because one of the more complicated of such proposed definitions it may easily be thought at first sight that to be good may mean to be that which we desire to desire thus if we apply this definition to a particular instance and say when we think that a is good we are thinking that a is one of the things which we desire to desire our proposition may seem quite plausible but if we carry the investigation further and ask ourselves is it good to desire to desire a it is apparent on a little reflection that this question is itself as intelligible as the original question is a good that we are in fact now asking for exactly the same information about the desire to desire a for which we formerly asked with regard to a itself but it is also apparent that the meaning of this second question cannot be correctly analyzed into is the desire to desire a one of the things which we desire to desire we have not before our minds anything so complicated as the question do we desire to desire to desire to desire a moreover any one can easily convince himself by inspection that the predicate of this proposition good is positively different from notion of desiring to desire which enters into its subject that we should desire to desire a is good is not merely equivalent to that a should be good is good it may indeed be true that what we desire to desire is always good perhaps even the converse may be true but it is very doubtful whether this is the case and the mere fact that we understand very well what is meant by doubting it shews clearly that we have two different notions before our mind two and the same consideration is sufficient to dismiss the hypothesis that good has no meaning whatsoever it is very natural to make the mistake of supposing that what is universally true is of such a nature that its negation would be self-contradictory the importance which has been assigned to analytic propositions in the history of philosophy shews how easy such a mistake is and thus it is very easy to conclude that what seems to be a universal ethical principle is in fact an identical proposition that if for example whatever is called good seems to be pleasant the proposition pleasure is the good does not assert a connection between two different notions but involves only one that of pleasure which is easily recognized as a distinct entity but whoever will attentively consider with himself what is actually before his mind when he asks the question is pleasure or whatever it may be after all good can easily satisfy himself that he is not merely wondering whether pleasure is pleasant and if he will try this experiment with each suggested definition in succession he may become expert enough to recognize that in every case he has before his mind a unique object with regard to the connection of which with any other object a distinct question may be asked every one does in fact understand the question is this good when he thinks of it his state of mind is different from what it would be were he asked 
is this pleasant or desired or approved it has a distinct meaning for him even though he may not recognize in what respect it is distinct whenever he thinks of intrinsic value or intrinsic worth or says that a thing ought to exist he has before his mind the unique object the unique property of things that i mean by good everybody is constantly aware of this notion although he may never become aware at all that it is different from other notions of which he is also aware but for correct ethical reasoning it is extremely important that he could become aware of this fact and as soon as the nature of the problem is closely understood there should be little difficulty in advancing so far in analysis fourteen good then is indefinable and yet so far as i know there is only one ethical writer professor henry sidgwick who has clearly recognized and stated this fact we shall see indeed how far many of the most reputed ethical systems fall short of drawing the conclusions which follow from such a recognition at present i will only quote from one instance which will serve to illustrate the meaning and importance of this principle that good is indefinable or as professor sidgwick says an unanalyzable notion it is an instance to which professor sidgwick himself refers in a note on the passage in which he argues that ought is unanalyzable bentham says sidgwick explains that his fundamental principle states the greatest happiness of all those whose interest is in question as being the right and proper end of proper action and yet his language in other passages of the same chapter would seem to imply that he means by the word right conducive to the general happiness professor sidgwick sees that if you take these two statements together you get the absurd result that greatest happiness is the end of human action which is conducive to the general happiness and so absurd does it seem to him to call this result as bentham calls it the fundamental principle of a moral system that he suggests that bentham cannot have meant it yet professor sidgwick himself states elsewhere that psychological hedonism is not seldom confounded with egoistic hedonism and that confusion as we shall see rests chiefly on the same fallacy the naturalistic fallacy which is implied in bentham's statements professor sidgwick admits therefore that this fallacy is sometimes committed absurd as it is and i am inclined to think that bentham may really have been one of those who committed it mill as we shall see certainly did commit it in any case whether bentham committed it or not his doctrine as above quoted will serve as a very good illustration of this fallacy and of the importance of the contrary proposition that good is indefinable let us consider this doctrine bentham seems to imply so professor sidgwick says that the word right means conducive to general happiness now this by itself need not necessarily involve the naturalistic fallacy for the word right is very commonly appropriated to actions which lead to the attainment of what is good which are regarded as means to the ideal and not as ends in themselves this use of right as denoting what is good as a means whether or not it also be good as an end is indeed the use to which i shall confine the word had bentham been using right in this sense it might be perfectly consistent for him to define right as conducive to the general happiness provided only and note this proviso 
he had already proved or laid down as an axiom that general happiness was the good or what is equivalent to this that general happiness alone was good for in that case he would have already defined the good as general happiness a position perfectly consistent we have seen with the contention that good is indefinable and since right was to be defined as conducive to the good it would actually mean conducive to general happiness but this method of escape from the charge of having committed the naturalistic fallacy has been closed by bentham himself for his fundamental principle is we see that the greatest happiness of all concerned is the right and proper end of human action he applies the word right therefore to the end as such not only to the means which are conducive to it and that being so right can no longer be defined as conducive to the general happiness without involving the fallacy in question for now it is obvious that the definition of right as conducive to the general happiness can be used by him in support of the fundamental principle that general happiness is the right end instead of being itself derived from that principle if right by definition means conducive to general happiness then it is obvious that general happiness is the right end it is not necessary now first to prove or assert that general happiness is the right end before right is defined as conducive to general happiness a perfectly valid procedure but on the contrary the definition of right as conducive to general happiness proves general happiness to be the right end a perfectly invalid procedure since in this case the statement that general happiness is the right end of human action is not an ethical principle at all but either as we have seen a proposition about the meaning of words or else a proposition about the nature of general happiness not about its rightness or its goodness now i do not wish the importance i assign to this fallacy to be misunderstood the discovery of it does not at all refute bentham's contention that greatest happiness is the proper end of human action if that be understood as an ethical proposition as he undoubtedly intended it that principle may be true all the same we shall consider whether it is so in the succeeding chapters bentham might have maintained it as professor sidgwick does even if the fallacy had been pointed out to him what i am maintaining is that the reasons which he actually gives for his ethical proposition are fallacious ones so far as they consist in a definition of right what i suggest is that he did not perceive them to be fallacious that if he had done so he would have been led to seek for other reasons in support of his utilitarianism and that had he sought for other reasons he might have found none which he thought to be sufficient in that case he would have changed his whole system a most important consequence it is undoubtedly also possible that he would have thought other reasons to be sufficient and in that case his ethical system in its main results would still have stood but even in this latter case his use of the fallacy would be a serious objection to him as an ethical philosopher for it is the business of ethics i must insist not only to obtain true results but also to find valid reasons for them the direct object of ethics is knowledge and not practice and any one who uses the naturalistic fallacy has certainly not fulfilled this first object however correct his practical principles may be 
My objections to naturalism are then, in the first place, that it offers no reason at all, far less any valid reason, for any ethical principle whatever, and in this it already fails to satisfy the requirements of ethics as a scientific study. But in the second place I contend that, though it gives a reason for no ethical principle, it is the cause of the acceptance of false principles. It deludes the mind into accepting ethical principles, which are false, and in this it is contrary to every aim of ethics. It is easy to see that if we start with a definition of right conduct as conduct conducive to general happiness, then, knowing that right conduct is universally conduct conducive to the good, we very easily arrive at the result that the good is general happiness. If, on the other hand, we once recognize that we must start our ethics without a definition, we shall be much more apt to look about us before we adopt any ethical principle whatever, and the more we look about us, the less likely we are to adopt a false one. It may be replied to this, yes, but we shall look about us just as much before we settle on our definition, and are therefore just as likely to be right but I will try to shew that this is not the case. If we start with the conviction that a definition of good can be found, we start with the conviction that the good can mean nothing else than some one property of things, and our only business will then be to discover what that property is. But if we recognize that, so far as the meaning of good goes, anything whatever may be good, we start with a much more open mind. Moreover, apart from the fact that, when we think we have a definition, we cannot logically define our ethical principles in any way whatever, we shall also be much less apt to defend them well, even if illogically. For we shall start with the conviction that good must mean so and so, and shall therefore be inclined either to misunderstand our opponent's argument, or to cut them short with the reply, this is not an open question. The very meaning of the word decides it. No one can think otherwise except through confusion. 15. Our first conclusion as to the subject matter of ethics is, then, that there is a simple, indefinable, unanalyzable object of thought by reference to which it must be defined. By what name we call this unique object is a matter of indifference, so long as we clearly recognize what it is and that it does differ from other objects. The words which are commonly taken as the signs of ethical judgments all do refer to it, and they are expressions of ethical judgments solely because they do so refer. But they may refer to it in two different ways, which is very important to distinguish if we are to have a complete definition of the range of ethical judgments. Before I proceeded to argue that there was such an indefinable notion involved in ethical notions, I stated that it was necessary for ethics to enumerate all true universal judgments asserting that such and such a thing was good whenever it occurred. But, although all such judgment do refer to the unique notion which I have called good, they do not all refer to it in the same way. They may either assert that this unique property does always attach to the thing in question, or else they may assert only that the thing in question is a cause or necessary condition for the existence of other things to which this unique property does attach. The nature of these two species of universal ethical judgment is extremely different 
and a great part of the difficulties which are met with in ordinary ethical speculation are due to the failure to distinguish them clearly. Their difference has, indeed, received expression in ordinary language by the contrast between the terms good as means and good in itself, value as a means and intrinsic value. But those terms are apt to be applied correctly only in the more obvious instances, and this seems to be due to the fact that the distinction between the conceptions which they denote has not been made a separate object of investigation. This distinction may be briefly pointed out as follows. 16. Whenever we judge that a thing is good as a means, we are making a judgment with regard to its causal relations. We judge both that it will have a particular kind of effect and that that effect will be good in itself. But to find causal judgments that are universally true is notoriously a matter of extreme difficulty. The late date at which most of the physical sciences became exact and the comparative fewness of the laws which they have succeeded in establishing even now are sufficient proofs of this difficulty. With regard, then, to what are the most frequent objects of ethical judgments, namely actions, it is obvious that we cannot be satisfied that any of our universal causal judgments are true, even in the sense in which scientific laws are so. We cannot even discover hypothetical laws of the form, exactly this action will always, under these conditions, produce exactly that effect. But for a correct ethical judgment with regard to the effects of certain actions, we require more than this in two respects. 1. We require to know that a given action will produce a certain effect, under whatever circumstances it occurs. But this is certainly impossible. It is certain that in different circumstances the same action may produce effects that are utterly different in all respects upon which the value of the effects depends. Hence we can never be entitled to more than a generalization to a proposition of the form this result generally follows this kind of action, and even this generalization will only be true if the circumstances under which the action occurs are generally the same. This is in fact the case, to a great extent, within any one particular age and state of society. But when we take other ages into account, in many most important cases the normal circumstances of a given kind of action will be so different that the generalization which is true for one will not be true for another. With regard then to ethical judgments which assert that a certain kind of action is good as a means to a certain kind of effect, none will be universally true, and many, though generally true at one period, will be generally false at others. But two, we require to know not only that one good effect will be produced, but that, among all subsequent events affected by the action in question, the balance of good will be greater than if any other possible action had been performed. In other words, to judge that an action is generally a means to good is to judge not only that it generally does some good, but that it generally does the greatest good of which the circumstances admit. In this respect, ethical judgments about the effects of action involve a difficulty and a complication far greater than that involved in the establishment of scientific laws. In this respect, ethical judgments about the effects of action involve a difficulty and a complication far greater than that involved in the establishment of scientific laws. 
For the latter we need only consider a single effect. For the former it is essential to consider not only this, but the effects of that effect, and so on as far as our view into the future can reach. It is, indeed, obvious that our view can never reach far enough for us to be certain that any action will produce the best possible effects. We must be content if the greatest possible balance of good seems to be produced within a limited period. But it is important to notice that the whole series of effects within a period of considerable length is actually taken account of in our common judgments that an action is good as a means, and that hence this additional complication which makes ethical generalization so far more difficult to establish than scientific laws is one which is involved in actual ethical discussions and is of practical importance the commonest rules of conduct involve such considerations as the balancing of future bad health against immediate gains and even if we can never settle with any certainty how we shall secure the greatest possible total of good we try at least to assure ourselves that probable future evils will not be greater than the immediate good End of chapter one part two